Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today's Jill's pin is a donkey and an elephant with boxing gloves on, which is very relevant to our panel today. Uh, so that's why I'm wearing it. We are exactly a week out until the high stakes midterm elections. Um, Jill and I, along with I think many of our viewers and listeners, think that democracy is very much on the line. So we've gathered uh, just a fabulous uh, panel today to discuss some of the issues surrounding the midterms and what we should all expect in this next week and any predictions. Um, we have Joe Walsh with us, uh, Robert Hubble, and Rachel Bitkoifer. Um, uh, Kurt Bardella, who we have, should be joining us later, but um, we'll get right into introductions because we have a packed panel. So, Jill, why don't you kick it off? Okay, so Kurt, who is going to be joining us shortly, uh, used to be a staffer for Republican elected officials, and he worked extensively on the Hill. Now he is a DNC advisor and an MSNBC political analyst. And we will thank him for being here as soon as he joins us. <laughs> Next, we have Joe Walsh, who is a former Republican congressman from my home state, Illinois. I'm currently in California for college. He ran as a Republican for president in 2020 and has uh, become a fervent never-Trumper and is now doing everything he can to ensure Trump uh, doesn't hold power again. Uh, he tweeted this actually in February of 2020, and we thank him for his relentless uh, speaking out against Republicans who pose a threat to our democracy. Thank you, Joe, for being here with us. And also with us in person right now is Robert Hubble, the man behind the Today's Edition newsletter, something I read every single night before I go to bed. He writes very clearly. He provides source materials for everything that he says, which means that I can check and make sure he's quoting correctly. He helps make sense of the news and he is forever optimistic something that I find harder and harder to do and appreciate more and more from him. So no matter what the pollsters are saying, I thank him for being with us today. And uh, Victor, why don't you introduce our pollster who will be yes. joining us shortly? So actually, Rachel just got here. Um, oh. Rachel Bitkoifer is our last but final mm -hmm. guest, and she's an esteemed political scientist and pollster who predicted the blue wave in 2018. She's the author of uh, the unprecedented 2016 presidential election and runs a podcast titled The Election Whisperer. Uh, we are grateful to have you with us, Rachel. Thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks, Rachel. And uh, we're going to start with sort of questions for all of you, and we'll try to control the conversation so that you're not all talking at once. But we want to ask how things are looking as of today. We're a week away from the final day of voting. Um, I, oh, I forgot to put on my I voted pin. Um, <laughs> but I, I have already voted, as has Victor. And I did it in person early, and he did it by mail. Uh, but I want to know what all of you think, how it's looking for Democrats, how it's looking for Republicans. So why don't we start with um, Rachel, since you're our pollster, let's start with you. Yeah, that's great, Jill. And I'm so excited to be with this motley crew of panelists, uh, especially our ex-Republicans, you know, Joe and Kurt, who uh, will join us shortly because of the sacrifices that they made at the personal level to do what they're doing. It's easy to talk about these issues coming from the left, but to come from the right, it is a great personal cost for people like Cassidy Hutchinson and Joe Walsh and others. So thank you so much for the service that you guys are doing to democracy by validating our arguments about the Republican Party. What I will say to 
people is this. This um, I just tweeted this. Democrats are poised a week away from Election Day to do something that has only happened twice in 50 years of midterm elections. Okay, I rose to fame because I anticipated the outcome of the 2018 midterms so far in advance of the pundits and the uh, analysts like Silver, but it really wasn't that hard of a trip for me. I'm a trained political scientist. I hold a PhD and my focus is American political behavior. And anybody with that kind of pedigree will understand what a a gargantuan lift it is for the in-party, the party that is in the presidency, because most Americans only associate federal politics with the president. They don't really pay too much attention to Congress. So these midterm effects have really, really always benefited the out party. And it was a huge asset to us in 2018 and and to my uh, analytics. So what we've been trying to do is is really disrupt um, this longstanding fundamental. It's driven, you know, for a long time, just about status quo bias, but also now by hyper-partisanship and tribal politics and utilize what we can to, to disrupt their wave. And I think that we're really looking at a very successful cycle, even as of today, even though we're a week from ballots getting count, counted, it's be- and that's because we're talking about being competitive to take the House, to hold the House. We're talking about taking 51, maybe 52 seats in the Senate. We're talking about holding those most important races in the country, which are the three Midwest, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin governorships, because those will administer elections for 2024. So I feel really good about where we are. And I want to tell people that we are fighting hard to trifecta this victory with a House win, but the House win will be, I mean, it would be enough to, I think Joe will comment on this, to finally force the Mitch McConnells and the corporate donor component of the Republican Party to question their loyalty to Trump. Because they should win all three of these things I just laid out, not just one of them. And if they if they end up with the House, it's going to be a disaster for policy and for a lot of people's pocketbooks. But can democracy survive? Yes, it can. Okay, so let's fight for the House. Let's fight as hard as we can. And today we have a chance to win it. But let's not get despondent. Let's keep things in focus. And let's remember that this election is all about the next one that begins the day after Election Day. And that's the presidency, which we have to hold in 24. Okay, so maybe we should go, since you called on Joe, let's have Joe uh, comment on that same question, which was, you know, what are you predicting for Dems and Republicans? Uh, Jill, Victor, so awesome to be with you. I am a huge fan of Rachel's. I wish I could believe like Rachel does, but I'm an old, dark Irishman. Let me just say that I hope everything I'm about to say is wrong. Uh, I fear the Republicans will take back control of the House, uh, maybe not by a huge number. I think the Senate is 50-50 right down to the wire. Histories against the Democrats, the economy right now shouldn't be, but is against the Democrats. One of the best things the Democrats have going is all of these crazy ass Republican candidates, all of these election deniers. I hope I'm wrong. I hope young people come out like never before. I hope young women come out like never before. But I think it's going to be a pretty good, sadly, a pretty good Republican year. So Robert Hubble, uh, who is forever the optimist. Uh, What do you think? (laughs) 
I want to start by saying, um, first of all, I agree with uh, Rachel, democracy is going to survive. Um, one of the things that I think is the most important thing that we can do is tell people, yes, this is a critically important election, but it's not the end of democracy if we lose the House, if we lose the Senate, or if Trump is reelected. America is bigger than this retrograde convulsion that we're going through. It has heft and momentum and size that people discount every single day. So I want people to be confident rather than fearful about what's going to happen. And whatever happens on election day, when we look at the results, it's not binary. It's not who controls Congress or who doesn't control Congress. It's what progress did we make? Did we did, did we win at the city council level, at the school school board level, state legislatures, governorships? Did we limit losses that we might have otherwise have suffered because of all of the work that everyone is doing? Um, we're going to make it through this, uh, and and I am the least qualified person here to talk about what will likely happen in the midterms. But let me say that I, I think that um, we are in an extraordinary moment in America's history. During this session of Congress, we had January 6th, we had Dobbs, we had Uvalde, we had the Bremerton decision, we've had the attempted assassination of Nancy Pelosi. And I, you know, I respect people who crunch numbers and conduct polls, but I think there is something going on that is different than 2018 or 2010 or any other year that we want to compare it to. We have never had a midterm election where the person leading the other party is actively planning a second coup attempt. And I think that will focus people's attention in a way that it has never done before. That's that's my personal belief. I don't have data to back, back it up, but I want to come back to my point about perspective. We're going to survive this. And, and, and I worry when people write uh, that democracy is on the line in 2022. It's always on the line. It's not going to go away no matter what happens. And no matter what happens, Joe Biden will be president on November 9th, 2022. There are so many interesting points that you all raise and we wanna touch on all of them later in the conversation, but um, Kurt's now with us and so great to see you, Kurt. I, I wanna ask you um, about what Joe said. So you're our other former Republican now uh, turned into a very uh, fervent democracy act activist. Tell us what you think about this election, whether you think um, Joe is right about Republicans taking over the house. Well, I mean, here's the reality. The polls were wrong in 20, 2016. They were wrong in 2020. Pretty much every pollster says they have no idea what to do to make it any more right or wrong. So no one sitting here today could really tell you with any certainty what the hell is going to happen next week. Amen. I, I certainly can't, and I won't even pretend to. The only thing that I know is that the actual data that we have is that after Roe was overturned, we saw turnout explode through the roof in Kansas, Alaska, and New York. We have seen that early voting is through the roof, far outpacing where we were in 2018. That's the only actual hard data and facts we have to go on at this second in time. Will that mean that we'll hold the House and Senate? Who the hell knows? I mean, there are really only three scenarios here, right? We, we, we hold on, barely. Republicans take a narrow majority, 
or there's a red wave and we're all wiped out and, and that's that. Like those are the only three outcomes that can happen next week. Two of those three, I believe, are outcomes that, that we can live with, mm-hmm. that we can build upon, that can set mm-hmm. us up to, to do well in 2024. I can tell you, it will be Kevin McCarthy's worst nightmare to have a, a congressional majority of, of less than 15 seats. He will be the most miserable man in Washington in that mm-hmm. scenario. Uh, and, and, and it will rip the Republican Party apart at the seams from within uh, as they have to navigate their own internal discord. We spent the better part of the year hearing all of these Democrats in disarray narratives that will look like nothing in comparison to what a very narrow House majority would be like for Republicans if that were to happen. But I do think it's important to note that, and Rachel touched on this, this election really is the opening bell for the 2024 cycle. And there are direct correlations. 60% of Americans will have an election denier on their ballot. There will be election deniers who will be elected to office. That's just a reality. I don't know what happens to our democratic process when you have people who campaign openly and flagrantly on the idea that they are for an illegitimate democratic process. I don't know what happens to the next election when the people who are going to be responsible potentially for administering some of these elections are two cuckoo for Cocoa Puff conspiracy theorists. Uh, we, we haven't had that particular waltz yet so far in this country this way. So I, I, the, the real truth is I, I don't know what's going to happen or how the reverberations of what happens next week will play out through 2024. I do know that this is a remarkable stress test for democracy. I do agree with Robert that ultimately there are more of us than there are of them, we will prevail. But I also know that sometimes it is darkest before daylight and we're seem to be going through that right now. I wanna ask a follow-up question when you said that it would be McCarthy's worst nightmare. Um, can you be a little bit more explicit about why you think that there would be such a division within the Republican party? You know, I was in Congress working on Capitol Hill for, for Republicans. Uh, when we took back the majority in 2010. Uh, and, and, I, and I had a front row seat to watch how then Speaker John Boehner's life was basically made miserable by, by like the quote-unquote Tea Party wing. The crazy Joe Walsh's of the world. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, and how that ultimately drove him out of power. We saw how his number, his right-hand guy, Eric Cantor, lost a freaking yeah. primary to mm-hmm. Dave Brat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it completely upended the Republican hierarchy internally. That's only gotten worse as we've had. I mean, let me tell you something. If Joe Walsh was our crazy Republican back then, <laughs> what, the hell do you, what do you think Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert uh, are now? Oh, my God. Well, and, and Jill and Victor, Kurt's exactly right. Uh, Kevin McCarthy would become speaker. Marjorie Taylor Greene will run that caucus. Mm-hmm. And the only other warning I'd mention is if the Republicans take back the House, there will be an extra, an additional 20 to 25 Marjorie Taylor Greens in that caucus. Okay, there's a big warning there, folks. If you're listening, pay attention. That's a reason to get out and vote Democratic is to prevent (laughs) exactly, oh my God, can you just imagine Marjorie Taylor Greene, a committee chair and leading a Republican caucus. Okay, picture that and go and vote. That should be all the reason everyone goes out to vote. I, I have a follow-up for, for Joe and Kurt, and maybe the, um, Rachel and Robert can also pick up on this, is can you raise the stakes for our audience of what would happen? Just 
kind of lay this lay the framework and groundwork for what would happen if Republicans do control Congress. Um, Joe, you served as congressman yourself, and you know how the party operates. Kurt, you know too. Can you guys talk about that and and how much danger we would be in? Yeah, I think it'll be worse than we've ever seen. Um, Nancy Pelosi became speaker in 2018, right? And then we had divided government. But and Americans generally are okay with divided mm-hmm. government. In fact, a lot of Americans like divided government because it's a check on the other policy on the other party's policy agenda. Forget about policy. If Republicans take back the House, they won't do a damn thing about policy. They will investigate everybody in the Biden administration. They will try to impeach whoever they can impeach in the Biden administration. This will be like two years of a revenge tour. It really yeah. will be. Now, the, and by the way, Kurt, everybody on the panel right now knows this. This isn't me saying this. They're telling us right now what they will do if they take back. And oh, I saw... I yeah. saw today that uh, you know Jim Jordan, who would become the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, mm-hmm. announced that they are having a press conference right after the election. Him and James Comer, who would be the Oversight Committee chairman, my former committee, uh, to to go over in detail their investigative agenda. They will launch an investigative tsunami on yeah. the Biden administration that will make that will make things like Fast and Furious and Benghazi look like child's play. It will look like I mean it will be that on steroids. And, and, their, and their sole mission will be to reap chaos, to advance conspiracy theories, to continue to drag the Biden name through the mud, to completely distract and cripple the Biden administration from being able to do anything but respond to hearings and subpoenas. Now, I'll tell you, one of my biggest frustrations of the Democrats when they took back power and took control of Congress, coming off of the most corrupt administration in the history of our country, the lack of oversight that they commenced on, their, their, their desire to want to back away from that. Uh, they're going to wish that they had done that because I'll tell you, Republicans, the difference between Republicans and Democrats, in my opinion, and this is from firsthand experience, Republicans are not shy about wielding the power that they have. Mm-hmm. Democrats at times seem almost embarrassed to have it and they don't know how to use it. And they're about to find out if, if things go south next week, um, what, what it's like to be on the other side of that again. Yeah, and as I a follow-up, I want to ask a follow-up to, to oh, that. Sorry. No, go, uh, uh, you, I just, you can go I next. I just really wanted to say to, say on Kurt's comment this, okay? Go ahead. It's worse than what he describes, because I, I want to make it perfectly clear what the Republican strategy will be when they hold the House. They'll use the investigative power to drag the news cycle, right? They're going to come after Dr. Fauci, even though they killed thousands of Republicans with COVID misinformation and policies in red states are going to try to, um, you know, investigate and find criminal charges for him. And the worst part is they're going to use control of the first mover power of the House. Joe Walsh knows very well about the House is where all revenue bills, all taxation bills, Hmm. everything has to originate in the House. And that is totally up to the discretion of the Speaker of the House. So when we think about John Boehner and the chaos that we saw with Tea Party Republicans, it will be like nothing we have ever seen before because the Republican Party, especially if they control more than the House, will learn from this that the fundamentals political scientists like myself and and things that make Robert sad talk about. The public is basically civically illiterate. It responds to status quo biases, economic factors, and narrative, media narratives, because it is not well-informed. It is not engaging in democratic maintenance. It's not reading the news, right? And so what they will do with the control of the House 
is they will make sure that Joe Biden fails. They will shut down the government. They will do standoffs. They will refuse to fund government. And it will all be about dragging Joe Biden down in the approval ratings to for 2024. And if our media system from the last year is any indication, they'll have a very healthy ally in our mainstream news system, but, which is just not geared to be manipulated like that. And, and, and Victor and Jill, one other really important point for all of your listeners, what Kurt um, and Rachel and I just outlined for two years, Kevin McCarthy does not want to have happen. He will be speaker. He doesn't want that to happen, but he will have zero control over it. Right. The and crazy the caucus within my former caucus will run the show and there's nothing McCarthy can do about it. Okay, so, and Kurt, you mentioned that all that the Democrats will be able to do is respond. And here's my question as a follow-up is, we've seen the Republicans refuse to respond. They delay, they deflect, but they don't respond. Is it time for the Democrats to take the same approach and just refuse to respond? Go to court, do whatever they have to. I, you know, I, I had actually observed um, after the Supreme Court just intervened once again and said that Trump didn't have to provide his tax returns to to Congress that the Democrat response to every subpoena that is issued by a Republican Congress should be uh, until you actually acknowledge and comply with the other subpoenas that were that were already issued by Congress we're not we're not doing anything sorry like you yeah. can't say on one hand we don't have to respond to your subpoenas January 6th committee. We don't have to respond and acknowledge your legitimacy, as Mark Meadows and Cumber McCarthy have done all year long. And then on the other hand, expect people to care about what subpoenas you issue. Right. You can't be against it. Sue in court to try to stop congressional oversight. Take a wrecking ball to checks and balances. And then as soon as you get power, expect everyone to find you legitimate and to cooperate. The, like Democrats should not cooperate one iota with Republican subpoenas until yeah. – the subpoenas that were issued by Democrats are complied with. And as Jill, you pointed I, out, uh, yeah, but, but I just want to say, as he has already pointed out, um, they, they don't do that. And it is time to start doing that because it's way beyond just the kind of subpoenas for January 6th. You were with, Kurt, you were with the Oversight mm -hmm. Committee, and the Oversight Committee can't function if the government doesn't respond to subpoenas. And right. they refused even on issues like immigration to respond. Mm -hmm. And so, and they're making the argument that it's separation of powers and therefore they don't have to respond. Well, if they're right on that, then the Democrats don't have to answer either because it's the same separation of powers. And I'm sorry, let me just add, add this one thing. And this is why I think one of the most important decisions that the Democratic Party will have to make if they lose power is deciding who will be up there on that dais. Yes. When Daryl Issa took over the oversight committee, he added to the committee names like Mark Meadows, Jason Chaffetz, mm -hmm. Trey Gowdy, yes. Mike Pompeo, yep. uh, on and on and on and on. Names who later on would become very central to the Republican Party as it is today. We cannot allow the geriatric squad mm -hmm. to be the face of the oversight judiciary committee. All due respect, to Kara Maloney and Jerry Nadler, and I know Maloney won't be returning, but Nadler will be. Yeah. Uh, we need people like Jamie Raskin. We need people like Eric Swallow. We need to put forward yes. our best and most effective communicators and political thinkers to be the faces of these committees, to be the front line of the resistance against Republican oversight overreach, or they're just gonna get smoked.
And Jill, you're so right. The, the Democrats are, and Robert, I can tell, wants to say this as well, right? <laughs> well, what if we go down that road? We've been, for two years, we've been like, look, there's a rule of law. You've got, you've got to honor this court procedure. So I know the intellects and the Democratic brain trust, such that it is, are going to say, well, we can't do that. We've been saying this for two years. We can't do that. They are counting on us to make that strategic mistake. Because mm -hmm. once we do, and we show up, and we bring Fawzi in, and all these people in, the news cycle will dominate, and the public will not discern. They will just assume that they, we are corrupt, and that we've done something wrong. That is why they kept their people from testifying, and it is why we have absolutely no strategic choice, but from this point on to play hardball if they take the house. Yeah. Robert, did you want to say something? I, I do. Um, I, on the one hand, I don't disagree with the predicate of anything that anyone just said. I think things are going to get bad if the Republicans uh, control the House. Um, I think they may be worse than any of you um, have described. But I don't think that's where the analysis can stop, because let's suppose um, that the Republicans are absolutely able to sow chaos in the economy, destroy the full faith and credit of the United States, yeah. prevent any business from happening. Then what? I mean, we can't just say a bad thing will happen. What will be the consequences from that? And I think that the corporate masters of the Republican Party will say, wait one minute. You are not going to destroy the strongest economy in the world. You're not going to make it so that, that, that we cannot tie our financial metrics you know, to the, to the dollar and to the credit rating of, of the United States. So there is a self-correcting aspect to what they will do. Yes, they may do all those crazy things until, the, until they realize that chaos reflects back on them and their constituents. So I, I think we just, well, I'm not saying bad things won't no. happen. I'm saying that, that there is a self-correcting aspect to, to all of this. Yes, <laughs> and, and, and again, not to get too inside baseball, everything we just laid out, if the Republicans win the House, will happen and worse. But in an odd way, uh, that will benefit the Democrats politically, and it should strengthen Biden politically, because what we're talking about is for two years, the Republicans not doing a damn thing for the American people. Right. And that will give Joe Biden something to point to. And Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is in 24, something to point to, something to run against. Uh, I think it'll help Democrats, in fact, if they politically for 24, if they lose the House, as much as we don't want that to happen. And can I jump in on Rachel's point, which which I agree with, and, and Jill, I agree too. I, I think that the Democrats should begin to play hardball yeah. with respect to subpoenas with within the legal framework, because... Mm -hmm. Look, there are legitimate questions about the power of Congress and the use of subpoenas. Let the courts sort those out. And all of the incentives will be upside down and reversed. Are Republicans now really going to go in and say, you know, all of those subpoenas and that executive privilege that was so invalid? Well, you know, forget about all that. Well, maybe they'll do that. And, and there's no limit to their hypocrisy. But if they do, it will have the benefit of reinforcing the role of Congress as an Article One, you know, co-equal branch of government. So I think we should test them, not in bad faith, but in good faith before the courts, 
and let's have it out. Let's see what the law is with respect to, um, you know, the the oversight of Congress over the executive. If I were Joe Biden and I got a subpoena from Jim Jordan, my response would be taking literally whatever letter Donald Trump put out and just canceling out his name and putting my name. Say, here you go. <laughs> I think he can handle it much better than that because he'll be literate. I mean, I mean it, won't be written, it won't be written. It won't be written it's in cram, but you this know, is, right. court is really focused on this as well, right? We have to find a balance because we can't become the thing that we're fighting, but we have to fight it with the right. tools that it's right. using. So it's always a, it's always about find, finding the right balance and making sure that people understand why and what we're doing strategically and for the purpose that we're doing it, right? But I do think that um, you know, as Joe's point. I don't want to lose the house because I know that the suffering will be real for real humans that I'm really yeah. friends with because I'm come from the working class. Okay. But at the end of the day, like if we only lose the house on election, when those votes are counted, I will be out on my street running around. Going, <laughs> oh my God, we did it. And I want people to understand that. Victor. What are you doing in preparation for the holidays? Are you going to be sending out um, job applications for summer jobs? Are you going to be sending out holiday cards? What what are you going to be doing? And how are you going to get all those things taken care of in the mail? So because so much is digital for young people, I probably don't use much paper, but I know just based off of conversations with friends that there aren't many people who know how to mail things out anymore. And so um, I know that when I, for this holiday season, I'm, I do plan to send out some packages to some of my close friends and family members uh, in the U.S. and even abroad. And so I'm going to need a stamp to do that. And um, I'm lucky that I have previously sent out some things, so I know how that works. But stamps are critical for sending things out. So I have an answer for you on how to make it easier. And right now, not just seasonal excitement or dread, because I kind of dread it myself, but it's kicking in now. And especially for small businesses like my husband's. So whether you're running a law firm or a small business, when your inbox is more like a blizzard than a winter wonderland, stop slaying through the traffic to the post office it's not too late to get your holiday mailing done and all your shipping including packages under control with stamps.com sign up now and you'll be printing your own postage in minutes Stamps.com is your one-stop shop for all your shipping and mailing needs. And for more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses. You'll get access to the USPS, the UPS services you need to run your business right from your computer. No lines, no traffic, no hassle. You can even save money with major discounts that give you up to 86% off on USPS and UPS shipping rates, 86% off. It's the perfect stress-free solution for every small business. Boy, 86% off really speaks to me. Especially for college students. <laughs> yes, and all you need to print postage with stamps.com is a computer and a printer. And if you need a package pickup, you can easily schedule it through your stamps.com dashboard. Plus, if you're running an online store, stamps.com works seamlessly with all the major shopping carts and marketplaces. So this holiday season, trade late nights for silent nights and get started with stamps.com today. Sign up with a promo code IGEN for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term 
commitments, or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter the code IGEN. That's for us, for the intergenerational podcast, IGEN Politics. You can also find the link in our show notes. So one of the things that I find scary and that you all have alluded to so well is that Republicans tell us exactly what they're going to do. And um, thank you, Joe, and everyone else, and Kurt and Rachel and um, Robert for laying that out for our audience. I was talking with Michael Steele the other day about what Democrats should be doing better. And um, I want to ask specifically this to Kurt and Joe about whether you think Democrats should be working with Republicans to improve their strategy and messaging. Um, Michael Steele told me that apparently Republicans have been trying to work with the DNC and um, individual operatives to improve Democratic chances, but Democrats just don't listen. What do you both make of that? I'll, I'll, I'll let I'll give Kurt the longer answer. I'll just say this: the Democratic messaging just sucks. It just sucks, and it sucked for two years. If in fact they lose the House or the Senate. The bulk of the blame should go to the fact that they never sufficiently explained to the American people what we're going through economically coming out of a once in a lifetime pandemic, and that this is our first national election since my former political party tried to overthrow an election. They haven't explained and they haven't conveyed the sense of urgency. My biggest beef, Victor, with the Democrats is where the hell are the fighters? Give me a fighter. Give me somebody who's going to get in the damn ring with a Trump or DeSantis, and I mean punch them. These people are bullies. Be clear, be clear, be clear. I I, I don't. No violence, no violence. No, no, no. I want, want, figuratively speaking, DeSantis and Trump are bullies. The only way you beat a bully is to figuratively punch that bully in the face. We don't hear that from Democrats enough. And you know, I'm I always... just going to expand on what they did, but let me just add this. The problem is you have two, two orbits, and I think it's important for people to understand. Some messaging and some strategy has gotten better okay, from the Democrats. The problem is, though, we have a system that political scientists call candidate-centered campaigns. Okay, In the Republican Party, candidates only get so much leeway. They run one party strategy. They run it absolutely everywhere, and it creates a cacophony of sound. In our case, we've got some of the committee work changing, some of these IEs changing, and some candidates running effective messaging, but it's not the entire system. And until and unless it does become that by 2024, with or without control of the House, we're going to be in a very bad strategic place. So team reform has been working very hard. It needs to be tapping as much Republican talent in that effort as possible, because those are the people who can teach you the skills that you need to engage in non-substantive, rhetorically hyperbolic bullshit speech that's meant to win the political debate, not to increase public awareness or salience or whatever else, right? They can bring to the Democratic campaigns, but until the campaigns, the marquee frontline races are all hammering. I mean, and we know it's not happening because look at Florida as Joe just pushed out. We should be hitting DeSantis. We should be making him the face of a fascist future for America. And we're just not able to do that yet. But there is a lot of work happening and I don't want to have people lose heart. And I'm sure Kurt will talk a little bit about that. And and that's what I, I, let's talk about that now, because one of the big issues has been whether the democratic messaging has succeeded. And obviously it hasn't. If we have close races in 
Georgia and Pennsylvania. I mean, just some of these races, it's hard to believe that you could think that Warnock could be beat by Herschel Walker. I mean, we're not doing something right. So the thing that Democrats should be messaging, what, sir, and let's hurt as to what you think the best Democratic messaging should be. You know, I've always observed that the reason why, let's take a Lincoln Project, for example, if the Democratic Party had messaged the way that it should, there would be no reason for a Lincoln Project or anything like that to even exist. Mm -hmm. The reason why outside groups like that have caught such momentum is because there's clearly an audience within the Democratic Party that wants to see the fight be taken to the Republicans with that type of style, with that type of velocity and intensity and smash mouth in your grill type of fighting. And I, I've kind of watched, you know, again, it's been an interesting journey for me as a former Republican who became a Democrat. And after five years, actually, finally kind of got through the door, was brought in this year as a consultant to the DNC and the DCCC. And, you know, and it's been an interesting observation because Democrats, Republicans are at a cellular level, very different. Democrats truly, God love them for it, genuinely believe that the, the, the truth should win the day. And that should be enough. And, it, it, and, and they can't understand why that isn't enough on itself. Uh, if, if facts and truth were really the, the arbiter of, of who wins and losses, we'd win every election from here to the end of time. And they can't understand why that's not the case. And so that's a bit of a deficiency for them. They truly believe that because we are right and they are wrong, and we can't the, the the when they go low we go high they really believe that like to their core yeah. i on the other hand say but every time we go high they kick us in the ball so we got to probably try to do something <laughs> different um you know i i also think there's something said for it takes one to beat one it takes a republican a mm -hmm. former republican to tactically understand how to message against that mm -hmm. and how to anticipate what they're going to do and how to beat it. But I can tell you the single biggest thing about Democrats and Republicans, everything Republicans do is from a posture of strength, a posture of no fear, a posture of we don't give a shit. Everything that Democrats do is more from the posture of, well, what if this goes wrong? What if we alienate this person? What if this person doesn't like it? What if we go too far? I can tell you in every single meeting I've ever been in in my life as a Republican, not once did we ever sit there and go, gee, what if the Democrats don't like this? I can't tell you how many times I have heard in Democrat conversations the fear of going too far. Um, and it's like you're fighting this fight with one arm tied behind your back. You have got to take the restraints off. You've got to stop thinking that we live in a substance-first policy debate conversation because, quite frankly, we don't. And the, and the reason why Republicans do so well electorally is because they have figured out that through repetition, through volume, and through deliberate action, they can reach the American people while we're out there saying 95 different things to 95 different people yeah. all the time. Mm -hmm. Kurt, can I, can I just challenge that a little bit again? I, I don't, I'm the least qualified to, to comment on this because you all are professional messengers, but you said that Democrats and Republicans are different at the cellular level. That's true. But they're also different at the party level. You have one party that is monolithic, 
and homogenous and controlled with an iron fist. It is easier to message for that party than a party which is truly built on coalitions. I mean, just, just look back two weeks ago when the Progressive Caucus issued that statement for the letter uh, regarding Ukraine. Um, I heard from, you know, moderate Democrats running for various offices in Congress who were beyond furious um, over that because they felt that was undercutting them in, you know, whatever state that they were, were, were running in. And I don't think you have that in the Republican Party. Whatever Donald Trump says the message is, is the message. And then you can be as unrestrained and unbounded as you want and you can go for all of the emotionally satisfying punching them in the nose which is a metaphor here it would be wrong to quote richard nixon to do that um i i think we should democrats should have better messaging but you have to start with a recognition that the democratic party and the republican party are not even different species of the same animal. They're just different animals. Yeah, but and Robert, here, let me tell you a little something. You're right. There are coalitional differences, right? The Republican Party is is an ideological movement around conservatism. The modal ideology in the Democratic coalition is moderate. The modal ideology in the Republican is conservative, okay? But psychologically, Republicans and Democrats are not that different because we both belong to the human species. So we are still subjective to the kinds of emotive psychological shortcuts and cognitive biases that Republicans have. And so what we're talking about in terms of, of punching back and blah, 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 what we're trying to do is tap into those psychological factors that do bring people who are, most people are not us. I mean, we are not just different. If you're watching this podcast, you are a one percenter. You are a information, government, civics, one percenter, okay? Yeah. 60, 70 percent of the country does not know the name Kevin McCarthy right now today, okay? And that's a reality that we have to design our electoral messaging around. So when we talk about this deficit that Kurt was pointing out, where we feel like if we tell people the truth and the facts, and we just prove that it's not true, that this is that, or that they wanna do this or that, we're gonna win the debate. It would be true if everybody was in, in clue into the debate, but that's not how most of the electorate is. And it costs many millions of dollars to get an eyeball message to an individual part of the electorate. So we have a lot of work to do in that regard, but I just wanna make sure when we talk about the differences because I'm one of the people that put these differences on people's radar. We don't take it so far to say that there's no binding idea ideology on the left to hold people together. And that's why, you know, a lot of the work that I've been doing with grassroots groups has been about, look, we've got all these different coalitional interests, but the thing that binds them together is the democracy, rule of law, and freedom to enact and protect them, right? So it's about changing how we think about that messaging paradigm to bring it into emotion and to bring it into stakes and, and um, framing uh, stuff that can tap into psychological things that all humans, Republicans and Democrats alike share. So, it's Rachel, Kansas, based on your polling, what, vote. Uh, go ahead, Robert, was that you? I, I agree with you, Rachel. It's the Kansas abortion vote. Right. We reframed mm -hmm. the, right. the Dobbs issue as personal liberty. Freedom. Yeah. And yes. that was the right thing to do. Uh, Democrats need to step up their game. I, I, I'm, I just, you know, it's easy to beat up on Democrats, it, but we have to recognize that there are differences in the party that just make messaging more difficult, but you're right, Rachel, we have to talk to people at at a human level that, that hits them where they live. So Rachel, I wanna ask you based on polling data, what 
message, what unifying message could the Democrats be using that would appeal to multiple coalitions? Or is when it Republicans just Republicans that- win, you lose, right? Because you fill in what you're going to lose, dude. <laughs> That's how they would do it, Kurt, right? When yeah, that's right. Win, they you lose, right? Why? It's personal. It's me, not they, not them, not somebody I don't give a shit about. It's mm-hmm. me. Because what humans care about, even liberals, is yeah. me. Okay. Oh. So that's to me the if you had to boil it down to one thing and I controlled everything at the DNC and I could control every candidate's message, I would have them pounding millions of dollars of tagline. When Republicans win, you lose, you lose, you lose. They will take, take, take. And that's how I do it. I think that'll be the name of this episode of <laughs> iGen Politics. Yes. For I sure. agree. <laughs> You've definitely given a name. No question. I might steal it for my newsletter tonight. It's, 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 I always <laughs> tell people to always steal my stuff, please. It's, it does no good in my brain. <laughs> so speaking of your brain, um, I, I have a lot of questions about polling because you know I've watched where the polls mean zero. <laughs> They've been so completely wrong. And I don't understand now, for example, how you can predict youth vote. Youth doesn't answer their telephones. They only have cell phones. Those aren't publicly available. So who's doing the polling of young voters? Who's doing the polling of, I mean, who answers their phone if you don't recognize the call? I I don't. And and talks to a stranger for 30 minutes. Right, exactly. So how do you do polling these days? What's, how do you do it? I mean, here's, I left polling, guys. Um, It's not that I don't find uses for polling. There is. But let me tell you the one thing it cannot do well for us. It cannot predict the outcome of an election that's inside its own statistically construed margin of error. So what polls can tell us at the end of the day, no matter how many you run, if it shows one point of vantage for one candidate or the other, it still means the same thing. This race is a toss-up. So our disappointment in polling is partially that we've developed a natural industry that's misusing polling and and using it in a way that it creates an impression to the public of a reliability and certainty that statistically is impossible to achieve off of sample data. And that's why Kurt was pointing to hard data, election outcomes, registration data, early vote data, right? Um, Polling is really great for message testing, experimental stuff. And in, in terms of targeting young voters, Jill, you're exactly right. So when we when we do polling, the other thing that, that is so you know difficult is you have to, because demographics determine partisanship and partisanship determines vote choice, you have to guess your Virginia electorate's gonna look like in percent of young people to or old people, black people to white people, Latino people, Asian people, so on and so forth. And what you do is you get this raw data at the end of your survey. And then you take that data and you weight it to a likely voter model that you anticipate the election is going to look like. And I think it's really notable because I talked to a a foreign political scientist who wanted to model these elections. And so we talked to her. And then when I told her, oh, by the way, you have to model two things. You have to model vote choice and turnout because the turnout is going to determine the partisan distribution of the electorate. And that will determine who ultimately wins. She was like, oh. I've never dealt with that before, okay? It adds in so much uncertainty to polling data in the US. So I really do have been encouraging people to understand if a poll says it's close, it means that we're, we either candidate can win. If it's outside of the margin error for one candidate consistently, like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, we can probably say with some confidence that John Fetterman is 
is, is advantaged on election day in that race. But we really do have very stringent limits on statistics from polling data and with the uh, in, you know, technology changing how to reach people factors with these errors. It really has become not a reliable way to anticipate an outcome. And are we relying on it too much? I mean, I, everybody talks polls and then people get depressed and they don't go out and vote because, oh, well, it's already decided that so-and-so is going to win or so-and-so is going to lose. No point in voting. Isn't that a danger? Yeah. I mean, that was the topic of my last LA Times column was about how the media is, I mm -hmm. think, inappropriately tipping its fingers on the scale yeah. by promoting all these polls all the time because it's human nature. What would you rather do? Watch a game that's 37 to 5 uh, or, or, or change a channel. So if you're out there every day saying, hey, it's over, it's a foregone conclusion, well, why is anyone gonna even bother participating? What's the point? No one wants to do that. And so the media has time to get escape responsibility for, I think, recklessly and knowingly at this point, promoting all of these BS polls. Um, yeah. You know, and, 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 and I said like, if we get to election night and it turns out Democrats pull this off, everyone's gonna be sitting around the table there going, oh my God, what a shocker. I can't believe this happened. How did the polls get it so wrong? It's like we can play that clip every two years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very distressing to me that we see that. It's it's the same reason that we no longer allow reporting of the um, uh, exit polls right. because it could affect California in a right. national election. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to have California go, well, what's the point? I mean, it's a landslide for whichever candidate, no point in my bothering to go and vote. Uh, so, yeah. And Jill, it's worse than that. What we've noticed now in this last couple of weeks is that Republicans have so much more money than us, okay? And so I'm trying to give Democrats permission to stop saying, hey, we don't want any of your money to corporations and the billionaires, because actually we need all of your money and we need it really, really fast if we're gonna shore up democracy in this imminent situation that we face and what they're using those billions of dollars for is widespread but one of the things that they've decided to use it for this cycle is to create a bandwagon effect by flooding the zone with polls that they paid for that buff up their odds to create a narrative that we're already screwed to take yeah. our voters out of the cycle and i know joanne reed focused on this yesterday and that there's some more stuff coming out about this today but it, it, it's it's just clear evidence to me that republican strategists are well steeped in behavioral research from poli science and other fields. And what they are doing is manipulating our system because it is manipulatable. And I'm going to cover this extensively in the book next year. How exactly do they do it? How do they, they take advantage of the fact that we are, we are, we, we cannot, the media system has a certain system of how it operates and biases and it loves polls. So it's going to cover polls. It's going to put polls in regardless. Right. And, and they have found ways to manipulate our system into to benefit them. And we have, I mean, that's why, Joe, we're running into an election cycle where your party, your former party, tried to overthrow the government, is sending armed militias to the polling locations, and we're still talk, interviewing people at fucking gas stations, right? I always try to remind the media, the first people on the Guantanamo barge, it's you, Chuck, it's you. <laughs> It's really, it's really hard. And we also have election denial right now. And we have a significant number of election denying candidates who, particularly if they become secretaries of state where they control how the votes are counted, could really be the end of democracy. And I know we always talk about every election, democracy is on the line, but 
I really do think we're in a different situation when you have election deniers running for those kinds of offices. What can Democrats do to get the facts out to defeat election deniers? And I, I have a follow-up question to that too, which is even if those election deniers or Republicans lose, will we see a repeat of what happened in 2020 with the big lie? And how should the media and Democrats respond to that too? Well, no one liked that question. Well, I'm not going along, and I just try to not jump in. Oh, I was, I was, I was waiting for Joe to jump in. No, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. Um, Jill, we have a bunch of Republican candidates who have publicly said if they, or who have refused to say, right. they'll accept the results if yeah. they lose. So short answer, I think it's going to get worse this cycle than it was in 20. Uh, and I think 2024 electorally could be a really big nightmare because Again, odds are Republicans will control the House uh, when the electoral count goes to that House in four years. I want to make I want to make one other though point on the Democrats. Um, we're living in a populist moment. Uh, the American people across the spectrum are pissed off, and it's it's been this way for a while. It's how Trump won. It's, yeah. it's what fueled Bernie Sanders back in 2015, yep. 2016. Yep. Most of the American people are pretty sick of both parties. And I tend to every day, I talk to low information voters in the middle who don't like either party. Uh, they don't care for un either party. They're unaffiliated. And, and what they generally tell me is they all give me a variation of Republicans are jerks. They use stronger language. Uh, but Democrats are elites who don't understand me. I, I think the Republican Party is an existential threat to our democracy. But the Democrats have a real problem. They continue to lose touch with regular working class folk, white, black, and brown. And they're becoming kind of a white, wealthy, liberal, suburban party that's out of touch with just everyday folk. Uh, that needs to change quickly. I'm going to yeah, accept you know, that. I, uh, I, you know, I, I spend. I have. I have this double life where uh, I, I I run in the country music community side of things. Um, yes. I have a country music media platform. I spend a lot of my time going to country music concerts all throughout this country, and I can tell you that the biggest thing that these people, these God loving, family first hardworking blue collar people, the first thing that they affiliate the Democratic Party brand with is that they're out to cancel us. They're out to judge us. They're out to take things away from us. They look down on us. Okay, but how and does that happen? How does that happen yeah, that's when in fact the policies, yeah. wait a second, the policies yeah. of the Democratic Party are the policies that will help those people. It happens when- it happens when you spend an inordinate amount of time talking about what pronoun you should be using to identify someone rather than talking about the fact that the other guys just passed a tax break for billionaires and oil companies are getting rich while you're paying more prices at the pump. That's how that happens. It happens when, when our side spends an inordinate amount of time talking about issues that frankly do not appeal or even like touch 90% of the population overall, like the amount of energy and oxygen that Democrats spend on certain things that, that, that I'm going to tell you, 
I was in Little Rock, Arkansas three weeks ago for the Arkansas-Alabama game in the Justin Moore concert. They could give a shit what bathroom you use. Right. They, they, don't, they don't care, and they don't want to hear about it. Like, we got we to gotta get away from that stuff. Yeah, and here's the thing, Jill, is like, how does it happen? It's not organic, okay? So this message that Joe just went out, I mean, that's what he was on the stump with in 2010, Joe. I, I'm old enough to have watched your entire, um, you know, movement and studied it as a political scientist. So, I mean, here's the thing. If you're if you're a Republican strategist and you're working on 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 this realignment politics that is the 50 year cycle of the Southern realignment, and your and your new electorate, I mean the Democratic stronghold used to be the South and it used to be rural politics. Now it's the cities and it's not the South, right? There's hardly an elected Democrat there. So we're really talking about massive coalitional changes. And in order to do that, what Republicans had to do is they had to brand us as out of touch, like city liberals that don't understand the things that working people care about, right? And uh, you know, under the assumption that people pay attention, they all know what we're doing in Congress and they know who Kevin McCarthy is. They're going to see the policy gains that they get from Democrats. That's not how 50, 60 percent of the American electorate gets or receives any information. And so it's very if you have a political party on the stump, all the candidates, all the party committees, all the IEs pounding out one theme, Democrats have left you behind. Right. It is going to affect public opinion. So when we talk about our issues in that bucket, Kurt and, and Joe are, are right, right? I mean, these cultural, like big city, like uh, you know, 80% liberal crap is just as uh, bad for, for general electorate, um, you know, um, uh, consumption as what you get in a state like Texas or whatever, right? The difference is the cacophony of noise that is created about it to tell people, hey, working class Americans, they're stealing all your shit, right? We don't do that at all. And then when we do message to the working class, guess what we do? We repeat Joe Wash's brand, which is that, that we've left you behind and we don't care about you, right? So we have to stop doing that with the working class and rural voters. We have to get out there and make it very clear the Republican Party has controlled rural America for more than 20 years and under their tutelage it has been decimated right yes. decimated their children don't want to live there why are your children leaving because the Republican Party has stolen all of your stuff and we have to brand them all across the board doesn't matter how moderate or how extreme as this destructive force for them. And if we don't match that kind of oxygen, we're going to continue to see erosion. And where we're seeing it now is in the second part that they've targeted for the same messaging, which is non-college educated men, especially in other buckets, Latino bucket, the African-American bucket and other groups. OK, so, um, you know, it's no assistance when one of these liberal Brooklyn people want to, um, you know, tear down the Lincoln statue. He only uh, uh, saved the American Republic and ended slavery. Right. So like those things are bad. But what makes it really bad is that we jump on board and spend two days or two weeks on the Internet agreeing about how shitty that optic is. Right. What we should be doing is making sure all of our messaging is focused on the opposition party and matching anything that we do that's crazy. They've matched it a thousand times. Right. So we need to be um, aggressive on a counter offense, not explain things, not say, oh, well, that's not really what CRT does. Instead, you have to hit with a counter narrative that makes that that voter, that low info voter that Joe Walsh lives with all day, that hates both parties, even though one party tried to overthrow the government and is, is sending armed militias to our polling places, and the other one just wants you to use a uh, you know generic bathroom. They see it as the same thing, and part of that 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 asymmetry 
is coming from our inability to focus our messaging on them. If they're talking about us and we're talking about us, no one is talking about them. All right. So let's, uh, before we run out of time, I want to give each of you a chance to maybe end with something on a positive note, because the <laughs> Democrats have, in my mind, <laughs> accomplished a great deal. Um, when you look at what's been done in the last two years, there's so much to focus on. And so rather than just attacking the other party, we could be talking about what we have done and how it has helped the mainstream of America, the, the, the middle and everybody else, maybe not the wealthiest who will be helped by the Republicans, but that's a good thing. So what would each of you say would be a very positive message that the Democrats could put out right now with one week to go? I'll give my time to Robert. Um, you know what I would, I, there's so much to say here, but, but let me just stop with this thought. I think it was Rachel said that this, that the people who watching this are the one percenters, um, who really pay attention and God bless you all for doing that. And I hope you'll go out and, and truth tell, you know, I, because of my newsletter, I spend a lot of time talking to grassroots groups all across the country. Um, and there are hundreds and thousands of them. And in every one of those groups, there are hundreds or thousands of people, none of whom were involved in politics in 2015. And now not only are they involved, they're giving their money, they're giving their time, they're paying attention, as Heather Cox Richardson said uh, last night, I believe it was, or the day before. So I, I don't, things are bad. And if we want to get them to be better, we have to recognize the ways in which they're bad. Part of the way in which they're bad is, is that the Republicans are out competing us in messaging and making a caricature, for example, of our defense of transgender people who are the last tar you know, legitimate target in the Republican worldview that you can discriminate against. And that's horrible. And when we defend them, we shouldn't let them turn that around into something about pronouns. I have faith that because of what's happened in the last six years, more people are engaged in politics in a way that they haven't been in 50 years or, you know, 100 years. You, 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 maybe Kennedy's campaign. And we should we should take hope from that fact because they're never going to leave. They're never going back. If we lose, what we need to do is keep them glued to their seats and say, that's okay. You know, we, it's not the end of democracy. We can take a loss. We can even lose Congress. The constitution still abides. And even if the 2024 election turns into just a complete snafu, the Constitution actually provides a path forward, and I won't go into it, but you know, we, we have contingent elections, and then we have the Presidential Succession Act. The Constitution will be followed at the end of the day, no matter how messy things get. So I want to steal whatever phrase somebody said here, and that is we need to stop acting from fear and start acting from confidence, because Damn it, if you look at what Joe Biden has done in the last two years, we deserve to have swagger. We deserve to be able to go out to, you know, to, to say to people, 
If you vote Republican, you lose. But more precisely, if you vote Democrat, you Democratic, you win. Hey, hey, Jill, I'm hopeful for two quick reasons. There are more of us than them. We know that. And every time I look at Victor's face, I get hopeful. Uh, Not only because that's a handsome mug, but young people are activated, I think, more than they've ever been. And I think that's going to continue. Yeah, Jill, I'll close with this. All I can say is two years ago on election night when I realized they were going to contest the election, that we were going to be looking at a midterm fundamental that would probably hand them both chambers of Congress and and a lot of governorships that are more important, in my opinion, than control of Congress. I, you know, all I wanted to do was go down rhetorically swinging. And, uh, you know, with the work of uh, many, many thousands of people, Kurt especially too, you know, we, we are, we have at least made a fight out of this election cycle. And I think people should, should start to feel really good about where we are. We should be looking at a situation right now where Nate Silver, with his little pompacity, you know, oh, Democrats are going to lose 40 seats. It's going to be a schlack. It's all about the inflation and just never mention that we're in a, in a democratic crisis, right? Um, that's what they should be doing. And the fact that they aren't is the product of all of the work that we've done up to today to put us in a position to be competitive against a midterm cycle effect. And I am so proud to be on team democracy. And yeah, Kurt, you're right, wanna... Rachel. Um, you, you know, democracy isn't a matter of chance. It, it is a choice. And we know that the totality of our population makes that choice and stands with democracy. Uh, and even if things don't go the way we hope that they go next week, and even further out to 24, we have seen through remarkable periods of tumult and mayhem and uncertainty that our country has always persevered. And it's persevered because our best hopes are embodied in the next generation that comes after us and people like Victor who, who take that mantle and are, are willing to suffer through really the mistakes that are made by the generations before them because they believe in at least the idea that democracy is something that's worth fighting for and that will ultimately prevail. And so in the big picture, in the big scheme of things, this is just a stress test for our country. And, and it's going to have its ups, it's going to have its downs. And right now we're kind of in a down period. Um, but every day we see amazing, heroic people take that mantle, get involved, try to be the voice and instrument of change. And that's not going to change no matter what happens in any of these elections. And as long as that's the case, I really do believe that the, the, the flame of democracy will always burn very bright for us. Well, that's I, a very hopeful note to yeah. end on. And I think it all depends on turnout. So if you're listening, you may be in that 1%, but you're the 1% that can make a difference, yeah. especially if you bring out five other people with you. So get out the vote. Don't just vote yourself. Make sure you encourage others to vote. And that's really what this election is going to come down to. Totally agree. We thank everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Kurt. And thank you, Robert. We enjoy this conversation so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. See you soon. Okay, Jill. Um, so there's not much that we can add, but I'll just say maybe for both of us, um, what we found, or I guess what we think uh, Democrats should be doing 
between now and election day and some of the good, I guess, optimistic things that are happening right now? I, I am encouraged by everything that we heard today. I also love that there were so many references to duking it out, fighting it out, yeah. Uh, because of my pin being what it is. Um, I'm not encouraging violence. I'm only encouraging that we really have our voices heard and that we stand up for what we believe in. And I think the accomplishments, um, we're, I want to post in our show notes, um, both Robert Hubble's nightly newsletter, and he mentioned Heather Cox Richardson, we'll put her a link to hers as well because both of them have very good, uh, um, Heather has a lot of historical context and they really have the data that supports it. So I think everyone can learn from that. And I know that um, Hubble's newsletter has included a whole list of things that you can say about what has been accomplished in the last two years as a way to encourage people to go out and vote. So let's let's do that and let's make sure that everyone goes out to vote and gets other people out there voting. And I'll just say, I remember, um, Jill, we met when we were running to become Biden delegates. And I remember I was um, one yeah. of the very few people who supported Joe Biden back in 2020. And kind of touching on what everyone else said today, that there was this kind of generational difference between how young people viewed how old, I guess, older generations have run things. And so that's why a lot of young people didn't really support um, then candidate Biden. They thought he would be ineffective, that he wouldn't be progressive enough. But if there was, I think, one thing that's been clear throughout the administration is it's that they are competent. Yeah. They are effective. They've gotten so much good things done that help young people, that help everyone in America. Um, for young people in particular, I've heard my friends talk about things like climate change with the Inflation Reduction yeah. Act, student loan cancellation, um, marijuana now, uh, I guess, basically allowing people with simple marijuana possession to be um, let out of jail. I mean, all of these things are things that young people cared so much about yeah. during the 2020 election and that Democrats and President Biden have delivered on. And so um, that's the message that I hope every young person walks away with. And that's what I'm hearing across the country and what gives me hope. So like you said, and like everyone else said, I mean, this election is so important. Democracy will survive, but it's very much a stress test. And Next week, when you go vote or before then, you can vote early, vote by mail. Make sure to encourage all of your friends and family members to do so because it is so important, this election. So we thank all of our guests for being on, um, and we thank all of our listeners for doing what they do. Um, okay. Oh, I guess that is our, our cue <laughs> to end um, that. But thank you so much, everyone, for watching and listening. Again, Election Day is next week. We'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics right in time before the cl polls close on Tuesday. And that's Jill's dog barking. So we better wrap <laughs> shortly so that Jill can get her dog. But thank you, everyone. And you can... <laughs> We've we've got okay. Jill, I think is going to go control her dog and doorbell. But um, you can find us next week wherever you listen to your podcast. Remember, we're YouTube.com/slash/Politicon. We're here every single Tuesday, so be sure to follow us and subscribe to us wherever you follow your podcast or on our YouTube page. Thank you so much. We have a week left, but we're in this fight together. <laughs>